welcome back to One More Thing. This is episode seven, coming back in a very quick turnaround from my last episode in comparison to the rest. I got with me the most renaissance man I know, Josh Rosenberg, author, uh, radio host at one point, current teacher, journalism teacher, world history, pretty much does it all. And now he has a kid, so he's officially (laughs) what a renaissance man should be. I like this intro. What if I just brought in notes? You're not done. You're there's not done. There's please. another paragraph. Okay. Fashion consultant. Um, yeah, you actually hit the bullet points pretty well. All right. Jay Searle, we sit here in an empty classroom. It actually smells like summer. Do you feel like, here's an SAT word, olfactory. What is that? Oh, God. I was never good at the SAT words. That's why I must have not done as well as I should have on the SAT. Olfactory, sense of smell. Sense of smell. Do you have certain smells? Like if you were to go in your grandpa's garage. uh, I live in my grandpa's garage. I mean, I live in my grandpa's house. (laughs) But yes, I do actually. When when I'm at my house right now, I have places that I still remember things based on the, the smell of what used to be there. Like his shed next to my house has a ton of just old stuff in there. Old tools that'll never be touched again, but I won't get rid of them because they're his. Isn't that and amazing? It, yeah, it's like it, you know, memory lane every time you go back there. But yeah, I went to Dixie Elementary School, and if I was to walk into the multi-purpose room, it would be 1988 all over. It's so interesting how smells can bring up things. But I brought it up because today really is our first day of summer. Yeah, and just walking from my car onto campus. It smells like summer. I don't know how to explain it except for the sense of smell is a powerful trigger. Yeah. And I was talking to someone the other day about what summer means to me as a teacher now that I'm in my 11th year of teaching. And it's crazy how now that we're now that I'm so far down the road, it means less every year because I know how quickly it's going to be over. Um, Doesn't mean I can't appreciate that it's here. And knowing that, you know, in two weeks I'm going to be in Europe, that for me is pretty much enough. I think the saddest thing about that is I'm not going to be seeing my kids for almost two weeks, which Mm. will be the first time I have experienced that. And I'm sure at some point in your future, you'll experience what it's like to be without your kid for a little while. It's, it's weird. I think the most I've ever gone without seeing Colton and Ruby is a day or something like that. So, um, it'll be a new experience. And for them, it's great because they get to be with their, uh, grandpa sets, both grandpa sets, and they're lucky to have both of them, uh, alive. I know when I was a kid, I lost my uh, grandpa on my dad's side really young. Must have been in my five, six, seven-year-old range, somewhere in there. And on the other side, I had both of them for the majority of my life. Um, so it, it's just, it's funny how, you know, that, that definitely shapes your life, how your family is and which family members stick around as long yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff definitely shapes your life. Well, that sense of attachment, which is the healthiest bond, you know, that's what every parent desires is the idea of, I can't wait to come through the front door and see my kids. This profession is perfect mm-hmm. for that. I mean, we get stressed, we complain, we work long hours, but just knowing the breaks are right around the corner yeah. to spend that quality time is amazing. Plus, right when you get back from Europe, could you imagine that moment where oh, you see I know. these kids? I can't even wait. Here like, we go. And, and watch Colton's going to be in one of those moods where it's like, eh, I'll talk to you <laughs> later, you know, and, and Ruby will still be there for me. But You'll feel okay. like you've been gone a year. Yeah, I know. Totally. But I mean, doesn't this also, like as a profession, show you how important it is to be a father and what yes. parents are for yes. children? Um, I, I mean, in my opinion, this is one of the things that it doesn't matter what political spectrum you're on. Parenting is so important. And I think I realized that even more as a parent, not that I never thought it wasn't. It's just that 
it means so much more to me now because I, I can definitely tell very quickly the students I teach that have really strong home lives and the ones that don't. And, and really, it's just amazing the percentages, just thinking through the kids that I've taught. I've taught thousands of kids by this time. Um, and it's just overwhelming that households that are more stable are just, you know, those kids have a better shot at, yes. at graduation, at, at success in life, all that kind of stuff. It's funny you brought this up. I thought of this last night because you're mentioning teenage households of today. But those first five years of life, so you enter kindergarten at age five, and then you're on the fast track through the school bus. But age one, two, three, four, five, those developmental years, that is where a lot of literacy is created, education mm-hmm. is created, curiosity is um, triggered. So for a kid who comes into your class, and not to say your approach is the same, but you got your own individualistic style of teaching, mm-hmm. for a kid that is going to flourish and excel, grab that A and have a real stimulating experience, and the other kid in your class who is going to struggle, um, do you tend to think that is a reflection of the teacher, or is it self-sufficiency where the individuals by this age have to know how to do high school? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when it comes down to why people succeed, yeah, teachers can definitely play a part. And I think teachers have a real responsibility to do their job well. Um, I also, you know, on that note, I could probably go on forever talking about teaching and what's good practice and not. And I always tell teachers the best way to relate to your kids is to essentially promote the most authentic version of yourself. True. And if you can do that as a teacher, kids will respond to you 90% of the time. You know, it doesn't even matter if your style doesn't necessarily fit them. If they know you're being authentic and it's really true to who you are, because, I mean, we've all been students. The first thing a student does when they walk into a classroom is they try to identify either the teacher's weak point or if they think the teacher is not genuine. And, it, and it's very quick. We're, as students, we're very quick to kind of make judgments on teachers that way. Um, so in that response, I think, yeah, the teacher is definitely going to play a huge role, but I think the bigger role is more incredibly holistic. It's not just family life. It's, you know, economics always plays a huge factor. Community t- plays a huge, huge factor. Um, and I think connectedness plays a huge factor. If a kid is connected to the school, either through sports or clubs or, you know, in our, our case, MSA is such mm-hmm. a big place here and, and definitely has created a, an environment where a lot of kids that tr- it, traditional education probably would not have suited them the way that this does. Um, I, I think all of those things are just as important as that teacher. And Yeah, to not dread the institution. Yeah. Like totally. just the idea of this is where I come every day. If you come into this campus and think, and this is where I want to be today, it's going to have a profound impact, a positive impact. Whereas you mentioned that first day of school when they walk in the classroom, you say they're skeptical. Mm-hmm. They're immediately judging us. Yeah. They're immediately thinking, what's this guy all about? Yeah. What's this guy about five foot eight, got some gray hair? What's his story? I always think that. And then if you mention promoting or presenting your authentic self Mm -hmm. to the students, think about how that advice could work for so many professions. Totally. I mean, how many times do we look at, you know, sportscasters and other things like that and we judge them based on their past or based on their experience or what they actually seem? Give you a perfect example and not that this is, you know, I was listening to a baseball broadcast, the Sunday Night Baseball, mm-hmm. and uh, this girl comes on and she's new to the broadcast team, in my opinion. And, you know, my history in baseball, being a baseball player in college and all that kind of stuff, I don't think I ever thought that 
not that I didn't think a woman would be able to do color commentary. It's just that she was not driving and like getting the, the little nitty gritty details out of other people. She was adding incredible color commentary that I was sitting there going, this is amazing. Like, mm. I love seeing that. I love to see someone who's so into the sport and has such good insight. And I didn't have to worry about, oh, does she have any experience or does she actually like... And, you know, all of us probably immediately goes, well, did she play softball? That doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. But the fact that she was able to add so much to that broadcast, I thought that was amazing. It's a rarity, though. Totally. I mean, because she's a trailblazer, it's okay that, you know, the word prejudice, what does it mean? You prejudge someone? Yeah. Of course, it happens. It has such a negative connotation, but... I think it's a human instinct. We prejudge, of course we do. I always tell the students, if I, you know, walked in the first day of school and I was 80 years old, would you have prejudged me? They all go, hell yes, of course. Yeah. Um, but for you to see a female broadcaster and appreciate her work, yeah, uh, that added a little novelty to it. Yeah. And I mean, it's the same when we had the one of the first female coaches in, in football. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's like, what is going on? How can you do this? And, you know, all the old school people are sitting there rolling in their graves or something like that. But why? Like, if someone really is legitimately ready to do it, let them do it. Exactly. They're going to be great. Um, and, and I think that honestly shows how far our society has come in the last 50 years even to be in a place where those things are going to probably become more commonplace as they should. You know, the people with the best abilities really should be the ones uh, getting those jobs. Have you seen that evolution in 11 years of teaching? There's more acceptance now? Absolutely. Of of groups that would have been, I hate to say bullied, but how about just scared to be their their authentic selves? Yeah, no, absolutely. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I think it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And yeah, we I I guarantee that part of this is that we live in this kind of Marin County bubble in a way where there is kind of that I forget that sometimes. Yeah. I actually forget that you're right. We are in a bit of a bubble. But the bubble has gotten better. And I'll I'll say that like even when me and you were in high school back in the day, I guarantee that many of these kids that feel far more comfortable going to school right now would not have felt that way, uh, you know, even 20 years ago. Completely agree. That's one thing I noticed when I student taught at Redwood. I looked around and went, wow, gay is okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These students are proud to be out. You know, you see boys holding hands with boys on campus, and they don't, at least to my eyes, they're not yeah. getting bullied. And I, I thought, wow, I graduated in 99. That's almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Holy moly, 20 years ago. Things have changed. But it's great. I think, you know, as much as we do complain about certain issues in our country throughout the world, it's great to focus on those little things in our bubble where there is a higher level of acceptance for many groups that would have just been, you know, feeling suppressed yeah, in for previous sure. years. And I mean, definitely in an era, again, like I, one of the things that's really been on my, my heart and my head for a while now is mental health. And mm. I mean, how much better are people's lives when they don't feel like they're consistently being judged on a daily basis? Don't get me wrong. I don't pretend to understand the plight of someone who feels marginalized in the society. I've never felt that, but I definitely can, at least from a philosophical standpoint, empathize with someone who would have that experience. And, you know, the hope is that that is becoming lessened each generation. As Max Planck probably says, you know, any new idea doesn't uh, survive by convincing its opponent, but rather its opponent dies out and a new generation grows up uh, to kind of believe some of those thoughts. So I think we're kind of in one of those phases where a lot of the people that maybe not have been as accepting are starting to just kind of fade away. And people that are growing up with more of an accepting attitude are starting to get to a place where 
um, hopefully we're going in the right direction at yeah. the very least. And um, at least resources are available. That's one thing you yeah. know we always try to promote. And we're the resource. You kind of encouraged me to realize I can govern my own world in that little classroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, we can always go to the psychologist, the therapist, the administrators. But at some point, you just step up and talk to a student face-to-face. Yeah. You can refer them all over the place. Yeah. Well, why don't you just have a conversation? It could be impactful. Yeah. So we were having a conversation about news earlier and... I, you know, I've been in a really weird spot from a, a teaching perspective. And I think the hardest year I ever taught was last year during the election because mm. it was so tense. And there was, you know, just the just the Republican primary was so cluttered that, you know, everyone felt this kind of sense of just what is going to happen. Cluttered like, is a good word. It, Those debates were were just fiascos. a total mess. Right. <laughs> and so, it, you know, the circus is real. And um, so you, you have this concept of news in an era that really doesn't value truth, but values narrative. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I'm so afraid of as a teacher is how many kids are going to start coming into my class that no longer value truth, but rather value the narrative that they've grown up with or the narrative that they have been force fed because they've only watched news from certain perspectives. Wait, elaborate on that. You truly believe there are some young people or even older people that don't value truth. Absolutely. They I just think, want it to fit their I own preconceived notions. I think they want it to notions. fit their narrative because realistically narrative for people is truth. I, you know, I talk about this all the time in AP Euro and I'm, I'm sure I've discussed this before on my podcast, but whenever I start AP Euro, I talk about the allegory of the cave. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, most of us, we all live in our own narrative and we all try to find a way to fit the world around us into that narrative. And the whole concept of the allegory of the cave is essentially that people, these prisoners, have a certain worldview because that's all they've been exposed to. And, you know, it's probably even worse when you're a kid because when you're a kid, you're exposed to what? Your parents? Yes. Maybe a place of faith if you believe, uh, or if your parents do, or if if that's part of your community. Um, maybe coaches and whatnot, but you're not having a huge, you know, life discussion with most of your little league coaches. Um, you know, so you're, you're only getting a little bit of narrative from a couple of different places. And if certain news stations are consistently on in your household, because that's what your parents think, that's your narrative. And it's going to be, especially in an era where I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, if I watched CNN or if I watched something else, there was not, I think, that heavy narrative. It was more, here's a little bit, of, and then here's some editorial sure, stuff. Sure, that's you know? how I perceived it as well. Now, when you talk about that, I guess the word indoctrination comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And people always associate that with, you know, Stalin and Hitler and Mao and, you know, brainwashing the young to believe a certain way. At least that's when we teach that word indoctrination. But on the flip side... But that's say, the basis of democracy, Yeah. right? I mean, Rousseau said that essentially the only way that you could create a democracy was to essentially teach people how to be democratic through community, through education, through the, and that's why a lot of the enlightenment thinkers advocated education because they saw it as a way to raise a generation that would be okay with the concept of the general will, meaning that what was good for you was good for me, which was good for everyone mm-hmm. rather than just what I wanted or what you wanted. So you had, but you had to teach people how to live that. Way. It has to be taught. It had to, to be embrace taught your rights. Yes. To be able to express yourself. Yeah. Have a role in society. So my earliest influences, you're right. Parents, coaches, teachers. If that's a form of creating the narrative I'm going to be comfortable with, Mm -hmm. then is it even possible to detach and go a different direction? Because my parents, 
for the most part, a couple of Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the belief system kind of reformed Judaism, I guess. Mm-hmm. And is that still me today? I have to admit, yes, mm-hmm. for the most part. Not to say I'm not a free thinker. I know I have free will. But absolutely, my earliest uh, influencers still play a role in my life. And, and my background is, is Could actually I ever the shake opposite. That? Could uh, I like, shake it, though? Uh, and, and I think, you know, my, my experience was the, the polar opposite of yours. Mm-hmm. And But realistically, I think for the most part, me and you can are relatively moderate individuals anyway. True. Um, and, and I think, honestly, and this is, I know this is not for everyone, but one of the reasons why I think I, I eventually got to that place and didn't really sell into the narrative of one side or the other is college gave me an opportunity to think for myself. And I know that a lot of people nowadays are in this place where they're like, you don't need college and you, you can find other ways. And, and I think that all of that is well and good. And yeah, if, if you're talking about pure economics, you probably don't need college. You could probably go to trade school. You could do something that you yeah. really think that could work for you. But from a developmental stage, college is, I think, not necessary, but close. Because you'll be exposed to a little more. Absolutely. From your nest to the beyond world. If you can't find a way to disagree with people and still coexist with them, you're going to have problems. God, are you right. So I I felt like college was the first time where I was forced to do that. Like in high school, you can disagree with people and then you go home to your narrative. In college, you can't (laughs) do that, right? You you have to experience Mm -hmm. what you're in and then you go home to, wait, they live right next to me. Or they live in my room, right? So you're forced to just have different worldviews living in the same place and space and then having to adjust. Interesting. So you uh, were able to put your finger on the pulse of when that transition happened in your life. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the first times like I felt like I actually was thinking for myself purely was when I was in a, a philosophy course for the first time and... I remember it was the first time a professor handed me back a paper that I didn't do well on. I was used to always doing well, right? I thought I was a good writer. Um, I thought I was a good thinker. And the professor didn't think so. And I was like, what? Like, my thoughts seem like they're good. And um, he was like, this is just narrative. Wow. You're not thinking. I was like, what? what? He challenged like, you. He totally challenged Did me. you initially feel hate towards him? No. I oh, felt so like you embraced I'm his message. Prove to this guy I can think. Good for you. And um, I, I think that at some point someone has to do that to kids. That's they what a philosophy force, teacher should yeah, do. Yeah, they have to force you to think for yourself. And that's you know sometimes one of the reasons why I love teaching AP Euro. And you know don't get me wrong, I'll teach whatever subject they give me, but I love it with AP Euro because I get to really do philosophy. Mm-hmm. And philosophy for me forces people to, at the very least, get out of their comfort zone and think about things from a different perspective. Um, and I think there's value in that as long as you're able to come back to reality, right? Because any time, as I tell my students all the time, extremism is bad in every form. So it doesn't matter how extreme you get mm-hmm. in whatever it is, it's probably not good for you. You know, it's a weird thought is extreme joy, if that's your goal, yeah. if you're idealistic, you're going to suffer more. Yeah. So you're going, wait, there's too much of happiness? Is that even a, a thing? It is. If your desire is extreme happiness every day, you are going to put yourself in a situation where you might yeah. suffer a little more by well, hoping to expect that every day. I hate, I hate to bring this into a dark spot, but think about how many comedians don't end their life in a positive manner. That's true. Their you medicine know, is getting laughs. Their lapsed. medicine is getting laughs, and at some point that runs out where, where it's like you've 
had it almost like a drug where that drug no longer does something for you. Yeah, anymore. the tears of a clown. It's a sad kind of social commentary that comics yeah. of all people, a lot of them are suffering. But here, I know we're getting into news and yeah. how we consume it, but just philosophically, because there's no more fun discussion. Yeah. Um, what is your own personal philosophy on this thing we're doing called life? Do you believe it's predetermined or do you think you're actually creating the path that you're on? Like um, serendipity, is that something that you believe in? You are where you should be? As if, you know, the greater, higher power has put you along this path. So mm-hmm. you're where you should be. Or do you feel like you truly have free will to determine your path? I think that at different stages of my life, I would have said different things. How about um, today? Today. Or I, even this hour. I honestly think that the majority of our life is not our own decision, but is rather the path that we have created for ourselves. So... I'm going to take a thing that I would generally not let my students do and say it is a blend of both because I think as far as where you start, it's luck, Mm -hmm. right? You, You essentially luck yourself into, and in my case, I lucked into being born in and live in Marin County to parents that love me dearly, to a family, like the whole family, having enough money to never be poor necessarily, and you know, I'm an American, et cetera, et cetera. I have the pr- protections and freedoms. And I lucked into that. I think about this a lot. But at some point, I started making decisions, and those decisions affected my future. And so I, I think that it is a little of both. And I know that, you know, when you get into philosophy, you kind of get that, you know, chicken egg kind of thing. And, uh, you know, is it experience that shapes who we are? Uh, or is it predetermined based on our DNA? Well, it is who both. We are, right? And You're I think it is a little right. of both. But I think that, in my opinion, the one that means the most is probably experience. For you to have that awareness of what you just described as luck, good fortune, here I am, a couple loving parents uh, who helped me with homework and reading and writing and encouraged me as a kid, I think that will drive you to have a little more compassion. So you chose the right profession because you will have students who have the opposite Mm -hmm. of what you just described. They don't have any support at home. And for us to have that kind of empathy is probably the number one, I know it's tough to rank what our duties should be, but empathy to really understand where they're coming from before that bell rings, that's such a huge attribute of a good teacher. And I owe a lot of that to my parents too. Because my my dad, uh, you know, my dad is a a pastor and, and a missionary to inner city America. To so this for day? him, yeah. Wow. Uh, and he, he's a teacher, he's a really smart guy. Um, but when I was a kid, I was going with him when he was uh, working in Hunter's Point in the city with, you know, people who had a drastically different background than my own. Oh, so your bubble wasn't and too so closed. My, my bubble from experience level was not too closed. Uh, you know, and, and to this day, my mom works uh, it, with GED with people in prison. So, you know, I have a a relatively good perspective on people that have had a a rough go and people that have started with a rough go. And, but I also know that there is positives in all of those situations and that you can find a way out of those places. Mm -hmm. Um, Help is necessary in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, But I think that the, the way out of a lot of that struggle at the end of the day has to do with your own personal determination. Because no matter how much help you give somebody, I don't think that you can help them completely out of those situations. They have to want the help and they have to take it for themselves and actually move themselves sure. to a place where they're actually going to benefit both themselves and, and society in a way. So they, I, I think that that's a thing that 
as a teacher, when I look at my kids, um, I actually like it when I don't know their background. So that I, and I, I always think about this when the kids come in and, and the kids always ask me this, they, you know, do you, do you have kids that you like? And they're like, <laughs> and you know, the truth is a teacher or as a human is, yeah, there are certain people that you, you just have a better connection with because maybe they like sports or they, and so, you know, yeah, you have little things that you connect with other people about. Um, but at the end of the day, like in my subject area, I love students that really like European history. Um, <laughs> but I like not knowing their backgrounds and sometimes being surprised by them. Yeah, because you know, you'll find out. It'll come to the surface of at their some point, assignments out. and discussions. Yeah. For sure. And to see the light, you know, that takes wisdom. And how do you gain wisdom? You live. You keep living. We're dealing with teens. Expecting them to have these enlightenments is such a challenge. You know, we have to still understand their age. You know, when we try to have these breakthrough, you know, moments with them, then you still say, I'm talking to a 15 or 16-year-old. But what you're describing, real quick, and that is uh, this idea that, you know, some people who have had underprivileged or less than privileged upbringings, it actually helps me understand crime. Mm-hmm. You know, fundamentally, when we hear about a crime in the newspaper, mm-hmm. a lot of people have that knee-jerk reaction of, that's a bad person. Yeah. But the idea of stealing, where does that come from? Yeah. I mean, need. I mean, a lot yeah, of the need. time, I, need. It's absolutely a human, human instinct. And if you look at philosophy in general, any of the guys who have built philosophies that eventually become political philosophies, your Karl Marxes, your Engels, um, all the utilitarians during the Industrial Revolution, they're all diagnosing how the ills of society mm-hmm. have essentially affected us. No doubt. To make us make decisions. And, you know, if you think of economics in general, economics is all about decision making. It's indisputable. Right? And so if your decision making is based around survival, people are going to steal. So the pie, let's say the piece of the pie. Who's getting a piece of the pie? Very few of us in this yeah. country. Not to say we're just going to go out and commit crimes until we feel like we're eating from that pie. But who's getting this pie economically? It's a very small percentage. Mm-hmm. And the people that feel we have no chance, of yeah. course, that's going to drive crime in a sense. So back to how we consume news just for a moment. I have completely transitioned. Mm-hmm. When it, we read the IJ, the crime blotter, you know, you do see these little crimes here and there. And some of the names you know. Yeah. You know, have you ever had that happen yeah. where you go, I knew that guy back mm-hmm. in the day. And where your paths are going, mm-hmm. it is a lot of good fortune from those first early influential developmental years that we have i think if they're good a lot of the time that path you can stay on Mm -hmm. if they're rough it's not a surprise to see a struggle later in life yeah so the question is getting back to what is news and and how do we consume news when you go and try to figure out what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. how do you do it oh that's a good question luckily i have a smart wife yeah and i really rely on her because i find her Uh, believe it or not, to be kind of unbiased. Mm -hmm. You know, she seeks, I guess, her own narrative, but she also finds truths. So let me just use this. NPR is probably her main source. And you're like, oh, there's the dead giveaway. Um, Do we have CNN on TV in the house every night? Absolutely not. I do watch 60 Minutes every Sunday night, and I think those are some great reporters. Um, I'm on Twitter just like you, but Twitter is who I choose to follow. Mm -hmm. And then I try to, you know, it's one of the things I try to do is have discussions with people that I respect. Yeah. Like if I respect their intelligence um, and I know like Peter Ornstein, Mm -hmm. he's a film teacher on campus who worked at CNN. You, I find you to be a wealth of wisdom around here. We have a lot of interesting people at, at this school that, you know, am I collecting valuable, incredible news sources when I have conversations with them? In a sense, I am. Mm-hmm. 
Don't you expand your knowledge by talking to people you respect? I do, totally. Yeah. And the way that and you were talking about Twitter and the the one thing that I would say that I did with Twitter that's possibly a little different is I followed everyone from diverse views. So while I Do you really? You're the minority. I, I, on I that. follow people I don't agree with because I want to see the other side. Give me because an example. Who's someone you follow? I follow uh Donald Trump, I follow um, Marco Rubio, I follow Ted Cruz, um, and then I'll follow Nancy Pelosi. Just to get a little balance. Because I want to hear all of the narrative, Mm -hmm. right? I'll follow Bernie Sanders, I'll follow, I follow them all. Good for you. Because for me, it's about hearing the noise and finding the truth from the noise. God, are you a rarity? Well, I don't know if I'm a rarity or if I'm just trying something that I know in this era of heavy narrative, people are seemingly not willing to seek out truth. And again, this go, you know goes from the beginning of what we started talking about. Like, in my opinion, what is most valuable is trying to figure out what is actually true. And I, I don't think in our society, any news channel per se is doing that. We were talking about this with different types of news channels. You know, you got a, a news channel like a Vice News, which is, you know, obviously it's probably left of center. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way that they show that they're left to center is based on the type of news that they're going to produce rather than just simply making the news that they're doing heavy narrative. You mean the topics they the choose topics to cover? The topics they choose, yeah, rather than necessarily the narrative within the topic. Um, and I, I found this the other day with for them with climate change because clearly – and the thing that bothers me so much about the climate change thing, it shouldn't be a political thing. It really shouldn't. If it's going to affect us and – if it is affecting us and people are like Miami losing actual land, right? Undisputable to evidence. Undisputable evidence. They're losing land. There is, if you're a conservative, the thing that kills me is there is economic advantage <laughs> to you figuring out a, a answer to this problem. Then why do they choose to disregard that? Because that's the only way it is a political topic when you mention how the funding goes towards a certain right. subject. But see, th- this is the thing that I think kills me with the disconnect between economics and politics and businessmen like a real businessman in a capitalist system would see a challenge as opportunity Mm -hmm. and not a danger to them and i think that people are so worried about the i don't know political ramifications of possibly shutting down certain energy fields or you know keeping certain fields alive that you know are, are serving a certain percentage of people and jobs and whatnot but instead of just rather seeing it as a challenge and the great you know industrialists of our like back in the day during the industrial revolution they didn't see the industrial revolution as a danger to their way of life that, that was the luddites the, the people that are sitting there going the, rockefellers. Yeah, the carnegies the rockefellers they saw it all as opportunity sure so why are we rejecting opportunity in an era where we should be embracing it and being the world leader in it. Because there's too much of this is how it's always been done and these are the issues on this side. Can we get to the point where we even say a two-party system has become dangerous? I think it's been dangerous for years. It pigeonholes you into a corner where you almost don't have enough wiggle room to have a cultural transition to truly say, you know what, I'm ready to look at things in a clear view instead of, well, here's how I feel about abortion Mm -hmm. and international policy Mm -hmm. and environmental issues. It's almost just disgusting that our talking points in these debates are almost so predictable. Yeah, totally predictable. That we're just, you know, robots at this point. I need to hear some free thinkers. And I I think the biggest problem with the two-party system is that it's 
like you said, kind of created predetermined narrative, um, predetermined things that people are going to say. And I don't think that the two-party system has adjusted very well to the millennial generation either. I, I don't think either party appeals to the millennial generation as a whole. Um, you know, usually you have generational shifts mm -hmm. in politics where certain generations will kind of shift certain ways. It, you know, in the in the 70s, 60s and 70s, you, you definitely had that hippie movement, but you also had uh, the silent majority that was sitting there going, y'all are kind of out there. <laughs> um, and so I think there's there's that. But in the millennial generation, and I'm not speaking for everyone, obviously, but I think that most millennials, if, if you get down to their core beliefs, I would say most of them are socially liberal for the most part and relatively economically conservative. Agreed. And, and I think that that party doesn't exist. And so how do you fit your you know, belief system and structure with a two-party system that has essentially split those topics in half? Um, it doesn't make sense. Wow. So if that generation is currently young and soon to be growing old enough to feel empowered to be the change, as mm -hmm. Gandhi would say, be the change you wish to see in the world, then let's be hopeful. Yeah. I find too many discussions when people talk about economics and politics to have a cynical tone to mm -hmm. them. Yeah, mm -hmm. where you're up in arms, woe is me. Um, I love to have more uplifting conversations of what if, yeah. you know, this generation that I clown a lot because I can't connect with their music or, you know, video games and technology and apps. Mm -hmm. What if we put more faith into them to say a lot of these problems can be fixed because you deal with a lot of young, bright minds. Yeah. It just it's a it's a mindset for us when discussing our world to just be a little more positive and optimistic because you yeah. know you and I if we had a political discussion there's a good chance it could go in a negative direction yeah oh yeah for sure and I you know I've had these conversations about political parties for a long time now and I remember a couple of years ago before this last Republican primary that was a circus to say the least a lot of people were on the brink of saying the Republican Party is dead. Essentially, that it's very close to having to change itself completely in order to survive, right? What do you mean very close? I think it's a fact that they reached. Yeah, no, and it felt a lot like that. I think the problem is, for both sides, honestly, is that the Democrats are also finding themselves in a position like that right mm -hmm. now, where, where neither party really has embraced the way that society is actually going. And the thing that scares me most, and I, t I tell this to my students before they leave my class, is... The generation that is currently growing up is not a generation that has a good grasp on finding truth. And that's a generation that possibly scares me because in an era of, you know, fake news and narrative, you have to have somebody and people, a, a large majority of people being able to think for themselves and not just follow the status quo and follow what everyone else is doing. And I think a lot of millennials can think for themselves and are getting sick of the the news cycle that is currently happening. Um, I just don't know what the the next best thing is going to be. Maybe it is that that somebody decides, you know what, this whole you know MSNBC versus Fox News world doesn't work for me anymore. Mm. And that would be a good thing, I think, if mm -hmm. if we can get away from just feed me my news narrative of the night and hope that you know it's it's exactly what I wanted to hear. From that standpoint of seeking truth, maybe even more important, people seek something intriguing. Entertain me. So when you mentioned Vice, just their coverage, it must be eye candy. It must be quality reporting, you know, and everything nowadays. 
probably has quick editing, you know, to keep your interest. And you and I were talking about the John Olivers, the Trevor Noahs, the John Stewarts. Love you know, John Stewart. Love them. And, you know, be, before we even say, well, am I receiving truth right now? Yeah. How about you're receiving it in a palatable way where yeah. this is the way I need to receive my news with a little yeah. satire, a little, little comedy. Salty humor. Yeah. <laughs> a little salty humor. <laughs> a little snarky humor here and there. <laughs> But that's why I like Weekend Update on SNL. And sometimes I feel like I am informed after yeah. watching these comics, these comic minds deliver me the news. Yeah. That's why tr- it, truth is a tough thing to seek. Totally. To have, let's say the guy who's the most right-wing conservative and the leftiest of yeah. lefty liberals, if they were to agree on a topic, maybe that's where you find what truth is. Yeah, for sure. I was, I think I was telling you this before. I was watching this thing with Trevor Noah, and he was talking about how they build a monologue and how they build their show. He said they they take uh, all the narrative on one side. They take all the narrative on the other side. They look at everything that people are saying and then they find the truth. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to take all of the editorial, what we would consider editorial news and sift through it so you can find what actually happened? Like, why is that necessary? And I, I think the comics have done a better job of dealing with news because at the end of the day, those guys definitely have political views, but their political views are secondary to what they're actually trying to achieve, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're trying to achieve a laugh. And <laughs> at, at some point, I guess you're right. They're I, trying I to achieve that, ratings, right? Right. Ratings and, and, and people come back and watch it again. Um, a guy like Michael Che is absolute brilliant oh mind, he right? Smart, yeah. And you hear him do his weekend update and you're like, I could listen to this all day long. I could listen to it all day long. Um, And I think we've discussed this before. It's almost like that weekend update is becoming an even longer and longer period of SNL. For sure. And, you know, I I know growing up on SNL, my my favorites were your Chris Farley's and, you know, just crazy minds, right? And I don't think anyone thought Chris Farley was a brilliant person per se, (laughs) but absolutely brilliant. Brilliant comic. In what he did. Yeah. Um, and, And on that note, I was watching LeBron James do interviews and... I think in this series, I have officially decided that LeBron James could be the best of his generation right now, even though I was probably doubting some of that and thinking maybe Kobe, maybe not. And the reason I think LeBron is, is he is the most intelligent basketball player of his generation. He understands the game of basketball like Michelangelo painted. And that translates to his skill set? And that's what translates to making him who he is. Like he doesn't just come into that gym and go, I'm going to out-talent you. He's going to actually outthink you. He's going to know everything that you're going to do and try to beat you. And honestly, the fact that they're even in this series, obviously 3-0 is not in it necessarily, but they've been in every game and probably could have won two or three of them, mm-hmm. um, is really more just showing you how good of a player he is because he has no team with him. So like he, His team yeah. is not able to compete with the Warriors from a talent standpoint. No, you're right. He does have the leadership skills, and he's a bright light. Um, but you're saying without that basketball IQ, if you had the same athletic attributes, it's a different person altogether. Absolutely. It's Vince Carter. <laughs> I agree. You know, it's f- so funny because I'm a Warriors fan to the core, but my favorite player to watch right now in this series is LeBron yeah. because you're seeing one on five. Mm-hmm. That's not how basketball should be played, no. but there's something so impressive about it yeah. that's going on right now. It's almost like the intelligence of Magic Johnson when he was out there. Oh, yeah. Like he affected the game so well, but he could do and be almost a chameleon on the court. You need me to play center? Not a problem. I'll play center today. You need me to play small forward? Sure, not a problem. 
Like, he just could adapt to situations, and I feel like LeBron has that Why do they ability. even give Tyron Lue a position or a salary? LeBron is coaching the Cavs. I don't know. He's the GM of the Cavs. He's the star of the Cavs. You look at all these things. I mean, he's worth every penny. It's rare that you could say that about a guy who gets paid so much, but for every jersey sale and ticket sale and endorsement, he's worth every penny that he receives. Plus, yeah, it's Where's he going say. next year? I want him to stay in Cleveland and then he's just not. bring Kawhi to Cleveland. Let's just say he's not there. And then I'll probably come to L.A. I think he's going to be in L.A. I think he's going to be a Laker. Oh, was the other option a Clipper? Yeah, but I think he's going to be a Laker because he's got Walton there. He's got a young core of Lakers that are good. He lives in L.A. Lonzo would blossom, huh? Yeah, he lives in L.A. So That's true. I think from personal standpoint, retirement standpoint, why not sign a three-year deal and retire? What's the reason we 36? say he's out of Cleveland? I think he's done everything that Cleveland has needed him to do. He's, he came back yeah. when he was utterly hated, when they were burning his jersey when he left. He still comes back and is absolutely beloved by that city. He's done so much uh, philanthropic work in Cleveland and around Cleveland. I just think that at some point, you got to get out of Cleveland. So there won't be any jersey burning this time. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I this th- will I be more think, of a if, if they burn ovation. his jersey this time, I you know, come on. <laughs> at some point, people. you just got to figure it out. They're angry people. So, yeah, I mean, as far as LeBron's impact on the NBA and LeBron as, as a whole, and one of the things I really like about him and guys like D. Wade and others like that that really have embraced kind of this, like, social imperative to better their communities, isn't that what – we as teachers want to see from our students all the time. And, you know, today is our graduation day. I'm actually speaking at graduation. Um, and I was trying to go between, should it be funny? Should it be insightful? Should it be random? All of it. All of it. I ended up with just, I'm going to try to maybe just give them some wisdom and I'll leave it at that. Do so you I, get nervous, by the way? I don't get nervous. Uh Except I'm not used to doing a scripted speech. And, and that's the thing that, um, you know, right now we're sitting down essentially with, you know, notes of uh, what is news and that's it, right? <laughs> that's and we it. just spent 40 minutes and talking about it. And we could spend it. another two hours. And we could, absolutely. And, and this is where I think as a teacher, I've become good over time because I have embraced the chaos of not planning and scripting what I do, right? Every time I teach the Renaissance every year, it's different every period. I don't, by the end of maybe sixth period, it might sound similar to mm-hmm. what it looked like first period. But the lecture I do or the discussion points I bring up are different in every period because I don't script myself. So it's going to be a little weird to read a scripted speech. Yeah, that um, is a different ballgame. It's totally different. And so I'm nervous more for hoping that I don't like have an issue with reading the paper, like dumb things like mm-hmm. that, right? Um, but the actual speech, I, I'm not nervous about. You know what most people need to realize, because public speaking is like one of the major fears in this country, mm-hmm. is that in most things, whether it's a wedding toast or you know speaking at a graduation or even in front of a class, you just got to remember, these people want to hear this. Yeah. All these parents in the stands at graduation, they're looking forward to your speech. Yeah. They're not your opponents. It's not your no. opposition. Yeah, people yeah, exactly. love a good old-fashioned speech. It's my favorite part of weddings, you know, when you ever hear a good speech, a heartfelt speech. That's mm-hmm. what I love. So you'll do great. You'll kill it. Um, but the parallel you're making I like with these athletes, a guy like LeBron, 
he actually can unify, even though he's playing in Cleveland and I'm in Oakland, so mm-hmm. I'm supposed to hate him. Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, he's a respectable guy. And I think the greatest athletes, you know, you and I grew up in the Jordan era. Mm-hmm. I've never been to Chicago. I yeah. had Bulls posters on Everywhere. my wall. Are you kidding me? Everywhere. I, I, do I, I had every pair of Jordans I could get. That's the beauty of sports. You yeah. know, when you're watching greatness, who cares what city the guy's in? You got to just say, we're watching something special. Yeah. I mean, KD's the same way, right? He the same such way. an impact on Oklahoma to the point where even when he was leaving, yeah, all the fans were up in arms. But those communities, they love him. Like he did, he left a, a great impact where he went. And those are the guys we need to start celebrating maybe a little more in our society or finding yeah. a better way of celebrating that, that type of give back and, and whatnot. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're, a, you're an athlete or a broadcaster or a news anchor or whatever it is. If you're positively affecting your community, you know, you're doing it right. No doubt. Plus, he's inspiring conditioning. You ever forget how in shape these guys are? Oh, yeah. Like if you and I went into the gym right now and I did one suicide, free throw, half court, other free throw, I'd barf. I would be nauseous. These guys, you forget, even when you watch soccer or boxing, how in shape they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. LeBron and KD, they just effortlessly flow and glide through the court. It's unreal. All right. I know we're wrapping it up, but it's funny with these podcasts. I've never done a podcast and said, well, we got to the end of that topic. Yeah. I feel like we just got to the surface. And what we'll do is at some point during the summer, I'll sit down on Josh's channel. Good. And we'll do another one and do a follow-up podcast because this was fun. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, oh, one more thing. No, I'm just kidding. I just had to say the title. Okay. He took my tagline. Uh, so if you haven't already, uh, leave a comment on iTunes. Make it positive if you can. And uh, thanks for coming in. This is one more thing. We'll see you later. I'm out.